Welcome to the Mini Culture Podcast, Season 5, from KFAI Community Radio in Minneapolis. I'm Ahanti Young. This season, stories about Minnesota history. This was prejudiced town. St. Paul, Minneapolis, was great restrictions placed on blacks in eating establishment, in hotel establishment. It was a gentleman's agreement. He was questioned by the FBI. He fought to be the first black person in Minnesota to get a liquor license. And his famous greasy burgers were once mentioned on the Johnny Carson Show. But above all, he was responsible for creating space for the black community in the Twin Cities to eat, drink, organize, and connect. Today we'll get to know civil rights leader and entrepreneur A.B. Cassius right after this. Support for the Miniculture Podcast on KFAI comes from Hennepin History Museum in Minneapolis. At the Hennepin History Museum, you can learn about your community through the stories of people, places, and things from our past. The museum's mission is to bring the diverse histories of Hennepin County to life and to help people understand their world through exhibits, collections, public programs, a magazine, and a research library. Learn more about member-supported Hennepin History Museum at hennepinhistory.org. This is the Mini Culture Podcast on KFAI. I'm Ahanti Young. I'm a working artist. And like a lot of working artists, I'm no stranger to working in bars and restaurants. I've been around like a used bar towel. I've worked in hotels, dive bars, even a Japanese restaurant. When the stage is dark, this is the work that pays the rent. Being a black man selling sushi at a Japanese restaurant, it's amazing to watch the heads turn when I say, Oh, Futori-sama goenai. That means party of two. That experience, it gave me not only a living wage, but a respect for the industry and a different type of connection to my community. Mecca Boss is a Twin Cities food writer and chef. And like me, she's worked at a lot of restaurants in the Twin Cities. Mecca definitely knows her way around the kitchen. And something Mecca and I share is a quest for black space. Black space isn't easy to come by here in Minnesota. The Twin Cities food and drinking scene is really white. I can think of a lot of reasons why that could be, but Mecca set out on a journey to figure out exactly why that is. That journey ultimately led her to look to the past, and that's how she discovered a man named Anthony Brutus Cassius. He was a restaurateur, a civil rights leader, and an all-around badass. In this episode of the Mini Culture Podcast, how A.B. Cassius became the godfather of black space in Minneapolis. This story is the first in a series called The Hidden Black Foodways of Minnesota. Here's Mecca. I have this indelible memory of my grandfather. He's at the butcher's block in the kitchen of our tiny lake cabin in the small town of Lindstrom, Minnesota. He's sharpening his knives, pulling the blade methodically over the steel. I'm sitting on a stool across from him. I'm mesmerized. Later, he'll inevitably be outside at the picnic table, 
butchering the dozens of sunfish and crappies that he would have fished from the lake. This would be our dinner for every summer of my childhood and into my young adulthood. My grandfather was a butcher by trade, and his food rituals might have been the seeds that made me pursue a career in food. I've worked as a cook and a chef in professional kitchens all over the Twin Cities. I've written hundreds of articles about all aspects of food. But as I've gotten older, something has always felt missing. I was born and raised in St. Paul, and I'm a proud East Sider. Brought up by my tight-knit, white, working-class family on my mother's side, my father, a black man, wasn't a part of my life growing up. And as I began to search for a food identity of my own, my grandpa's fish fries or my Norwegian grandmother's oyster stew just wasn't enough. As I searched around Minnesota for something to tether me to black food traditions, I kept coming up short. I couldn't find many black-owned bars or restaurants with women who looked like me at the helm. So I reached into the past to see what might have been here, but also to try to understand why the Minnesota food scene looks this way. In my search, I stumbled on a man named Anthony Brutus Cassius. He was a pioneering bar and restaurant owner, the first black person to get a liquor license in the city of Minneapolis. And he was also a major civil rights leader in his time. People say there hasn't been any changes, but I'm a living example that can attest to that. I've lived through the greatest 50 years in the history of mankind. Korean War, the atomic bomb, two world wars, two depressions. So I've seen it all and lived it all. Cassius lived and saw it all through this really specific lens of being a black business owner. There was no such thing as just opening a bar for a black man in Cassius's Minneapolis. I've been researching Cassius for the last couple of years, and one of the first things I read about him was this quote that's really stuck with me. Make no mistake, there were great restrictions placed on blacks. That one sentence gave me a clue about my search. Over the years, I kept thinking about Cassius, what he must have been like, because he did get his liquor license and his bar. In my mind's eye, he was shaft, kicking down doors and taking no mess from white people in a tight afro and leather jacket. I went on this journey to discover more about him, and what I found out was that he did have to fight, and he was way more than a badass bar owner. Anthony Brutus Cassius was the godfather of black space in Minneapolis. This is an interview with Cassius of 4026 Clinton Avenue South of Minneapolis on December 1, 1981. In the early 1980s, Cassius recorded a series of oral history interviews with the Minnesota Historical Society. He was in his 70s, reflecting back on his life and where his story started. Yes, I was born in Meridian, Oklahoma, 1907. My father was a minister. My mother was half Choctaw and half Black. Came from a family of, I think, about 18. And I came to Minnesota when I graduated from the eighth grade in uh, Guthrie, Oklahoma. I came here at the age of uh, 13. Cassius recorded hours of oral history. Hearing him talk about his life, I got a picture of him as a leader. He was that dude. Did you ever see the movie The Godfather? Well, you remember how people w- would have come to The Godfather and they asked him all kinds of questions and stuff like that. I'm like, and I might watch the movie. I said, that reminded me of, of Grandpa. Saluki Fardon is Cassius's grandson. He started out working at Cassius Bar when he was just nine years old. Cassius was a father figure to Saluki, and he remembers his grandfather as this shrewd businessman, someone who was devoted to his family and to the old Southside neighborhood where he lived for over 40 years. Everybody in the neighborhood knew him. 
when people came to town, black people especially, they were kind of said the best way to learn about the places is go to Mr. Cassius. He knows what places, welcome black people, what neighborhoods and stuff like that. And so that he was one of the key people that had that type of position and that type of power. But before he became Mr. Cassius, he spent his early years in the country, 380 acres of Oklahoma farmland. That's where he first learned about food and cooking. We're so used to going to grocery stores and buying our food, but my grandfather came up on a farm. They raised and cooked their food. Um, they had a big family, so he was used to cooking big meals because that's what they had. They had this a lot of cooking, you know, for the family. I first started researching Cassius because I was looking for a food identity of my own. I wanted to know what Black people were cooking and eating in Minnesota back in the day. So when Saluki started telling me about what they ate at home, I got excited. He cooked every day. Matter of fact, he cooked breakfast every Sunday for us. How many grits, mashed potatoes, bacon, sausage, ham, biscuits, pancakes, scrambled eggs, fried eggs, basically anything we wanted. But the more I learned about Cassius, the less this story became about food. Instead, it became more about the unfathomable circumstances that brought him here in the first place. Cassius's legacy reveals more about Minneapolis and America than I could have ever imagined. Cassius grew up in the Jim Crow South. And I remember one time he told me that he went by his best friend's house to go pick him up to go to school. And they had lynched him overnight. They had lynched him and they gutted him. And he said he never forgot that sight. That'd be hard for anybody to forget, you know, your best friend. And they were teenagers then, too. There was something else that happened when Cassius was a teenager. Cassius grew up 80 miles outside of Tulsa. By the 1920s, Tulsa had a thriving Black business district known as Black Wall Street. In the spring of 1921, white mobs terrorized Black Wall Street, burning it down. They killed and injured hundreds of people. Businesses, homes, churches, and community wealth were destroyed overnight. Cassius and his brother left Oklahoma the next year. I think it's really significant that he came to Minnesota fleeing racial violence in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? You know, one of the most notorious episodes of racial violence in American history. Kirsten Delegard is a historian at the University of Minnesota who has researched and written about Cassius. And so he, as you know, very young kid at age 13, his family put him on a train up to St. Paul, where he got a job working as a janitor. And he slept in the basement of the building where he worked. Uh, I, I can't even imagine being a young child, basically, and being on your own. I grew up being told that the Great Migration, millions of Black people fleeing the rural South, was about Black people seeking jobs and opportunity. The closer reality is that they were fleeing white terrorism, destruction of their farms and properties, and the very real prospect of violence or death. So they went north in hopes of finding safety. But he arrived in St. Paul, of course, at a moment where white resistance to the presence of Black people was really growing and really getting more organized. That janitor job that Cassius got, it was at the Merchant Hotel in downtown St. Paul. He did work like polishing spittoons and pay toilets. He probably wanted somewhere to go besides his job and a mattress in the basement. So he went to the Black churches, one of the only safe spaces for Black people at the time. 
By the fall, Cassius enrolled himself in high school. The fact that he could even start high school was a feat in itself. Back in the South, Black children were discouraged from getting an education, and it was only through the insistence of his father that he finished the eighth grade. Cassius had a sheepskin diploma to prove that he had graduated. He remembers the administrators at Central High School in St. Paul making fun of it. This was a prejudiced town, St. Paul, Minneapolis. About the only things you could do was go to school. There was no prejudice in the school system because it wasn't enough to constitute a threat. The class I graduated in was 1,200, and there was only two color, three colored in the whole school. So you know we couldn't constitute no threat. The language Cassius uses, words like Negro and colored, they reflect his time and the context he was living in, a time when opportunities for Black people were still extremely limited. Graduating in the upper part of my class was outstanding in football, all city, all state. But the chance of a Black man getting a scholarship to a college was nil. There just wasn't anything. One of the few career tracks for Black men at the time was the ministry. And so with the help of his high school football coach, Cassius got into McAllister College's divinity program because it offered a reduced tuition. After about a year, he decided to leave and started searching for other opportunities. By this time, he was already married with two kids. Meanwhile, the whole world was about to change. And then in 1929, somebody rocked the boat, and the flimsy house of cards of our prosperity collapsed. He left college right at the moment of the stock market crash in 1929. So not only is it a difficult labor market for Black men, but then you have the collapse of the global economy, which of course hit hardest on people who are already most vulnerable. By this point, Cassius had gone through the hard work of getting himself through high school, where he was a star student and athlete, and he'd been to college. But all of this still wasn't enough to guarantee him a decent living. The range of occupations open to Black people at this point in the Twin Cities were very limited, and probably much more limited than places with larger Black communities because you had to rely on other Black people to support you as a professional. And the, the community was just so tiny. Here's the places you worked at. The Athletic Club, the Elks Club, the Curtis Hotel, department stores, Dayton, Dayton's denying no Blacks. So you either worked in the hotel and restaurant industry, you worked on the railroad. The Black community was so tiny, and yet ways to make a living, or ways to just be, were still being restricted. Knowing this helps me not only understand Cassius's world, but my own world too. History informs the present. There are real tangible reasons for why my hometown and its food scene look the way they do today, and why my own opportunities and inspiration have also felt limited. But while back in 1929, Cassius could have become a minister like his father, he says in his oral histories that he was ill-cast. Maybe he simply didn't want to go into the ministry, or maybe he needed to support his young family. So he decides to go back into the hotel industry. But when he starts working, he finds that the industry is exploiting black workers. When I went to the Curtis Hotel to work as a waiter, I was very discouraged because they only paid $17 a month wages. And if you caught you with any cream in your coffee, they charged you a nickel. And if they caught you 
with a pat of butter, you had to be a nickel. And if you broke a glass, which in waitering, you're bound to break some, that was all deductible. So there was no way for you to get $17 a month. So Cassius starts asking around, and he learns that the white waiters in other downtown hotels, places like the Radisson, the Nicollet, the Minneapolis Club, and the Athletic Club, were all being paid $75 a month. Cassius and the all-black white staff at the Curtis, they were only being paid $17 a month. And I said, this can't be right. We work in here because we our faces are black for... $17 a month. So I attempted to organize, which was very difficult because black people were afraid of organizations. The only organizations that they knew anything about was the churches in a few lodges. And it was awful hard to sell them. But by 1930, through persistence in finding other like-minded co-workers, Cassius formed the city's first all-black hotel workers' union. They joined forces with Local 665, the very first integrated union in Minnesota. And finally, they received backing from the Teamsters, North America's strongest labor union. Together, they were this powerful bargaining force. The black waiters sued the Curtis Hotel and eventually won back wages to the tune of $500 per member. It was enough to buy a house at the time. And obviously, he became really involved in the labor movement. and he can't have gotten involved in the labor movement because he thought working conditions were just ideal. <laughs> you know, he got involved in the labor movement because he believed that he and other workers needed more protections. Up until the 1930s, Minneapolis was known as an anti-union town. But things were starting to change. And of course, Cassius was right there. He started getting into the labor movement right at the moment when the labor movement was really taking off across the country, but especially in Minneapolis, right? So in the early 1930s, there was a really radical, sustained organizing drive, which culminated in the trucker strike of 1934. That strike was a major turning point for the labor movement in Minneapolis. In 1934, truckers and the Teamsters Union took to the streets to demand fair wages and better working conditions. It happened in the middle of the Great Depression, and by the summer, the strike turned violent and was making national news. These pictures of the Minneapolis truck driver's strike, typical of disorders flaring up in various cities, show a spirit of lawlessness which has no place in America. A strong guard of police and distribution of nightsticks to citizen deputies fails to check the crowd, which closes in in an ugly move. Outnumbering the police ten to one, they attack in gangs. The actual beginning of hand-to-hand fighting in which one deputy was beaten to death and scores were injured. As far as I know, Cassius wasn't out fighting in the streets. But something I think a lot of people forget is that food and cooking are a crucial part of any protest movement. Protesters need to eat. And Cassius, he was making sure strikers got fed. Yeah, I was one of the cooks down there. I saw all the strike breakers the morning they give the order to march, issued everybody an axe handle. So I've been active in the history of the movement since 1930. And I know virtually everyone that has been active in it. And that's what he reports, is that it was the connections with people that he made in the labor movement in the 1930s that laid the groundwork for everything that came after that. And Cassius did make a lot of connections. Connections with people like former Minneapolis Mayor Don Frazier, labor leader Nellie Stone Johnson, and even the vice president, Hubert H. Humphrey. 
I put the first $5 in for Humphrey to run for mayor of Minneapolis. So you put the first five bucks in the Humphreys camp? Yes, I did. Yeah, first time he run, he lost. And that connection, it would pay off years later. But meanwhile, it's the late 1930s, and there still wasn't a place for Black people to gather, eat, drink, or hang out was great restriction placed on blacks in eating establishment, in hotel establishment. Up until the late 40s, a Negro couldn't stay in downtown Minneapolis Hotel. It was a gentleman's agreement. The major hotels, they didn't hire no black entertainers. It was a gentleman's agreement. And I think that I participated in the first civil movement in the state of Minnesota was when the World Theater, located at 8th and Hennepin, bought The Birth of a Nation here. Birth of a Nation was a silent film that came out in 1915 with the original title, The Klansmen. The film portrayed the KKK as heroes and African Americans in derogatory and racist stereotypes. Cassius and other Black leaders, they weren't having it. They protested outside the theater, encouraging a boycott of the film, and were arrested. It was during this time that he joined forces with other black leaders to start organizing for civil rights. And we formed what was known as the Minnesota Club. There was about eight of us. We met once a month in Foster's Sweet Shop on 6th and Lindale. We met in the back. And all they wanted us to do was, if we met there, was to buy a dish of ice cream. Meeting up at an ice cream shop might seem like such a small thing, but as Kirsten Delegard illustrates, it was a really big thing. He talks about how important it was that he was able to meet with other civil rights activists in a in an ice cream store in North Minneapolis, you know, and that they were allowed to sit there as long as they bought a dish of ice cream. And how precious and unusual that was in, in Minneapolis to have that kind of space where you could be together and be in conversation and dream and plot and strategize. When I think about Cassius and his contributions to physical black space, it's now so clear to me what he had to accomplish first. Before he can begin to think about making an actual space, he has to create metaphorical space. Rights, civil rights. You're not gonna abuse me in my workplace. You're not gonna discriminate against me in public. And finding a physical space for Cassius and others like him to have those conversations, to strategize, was so challenging. It makes me think about the control of space and how powerful space is. When people get together and have a conversation, when they plan and plot, that's powerful. Here's Kirsten Delegard again. When I look at sort of the chronology or the way he tells his life story and the way he talks about these really important moments for his life, He talks a lot about the importance of place, of creating space for people to to organize and to come together. Even in 2021, Black people occupying what's supposed to be public space, even now, that has its dangers. Imagine what it was like then. This is why Cassius needed to make his own space, a space for himself and for people like him, a space to gather, to be safe, and to dream.
people always ask me as a historian, if I could go back in history, where would I go? What would I see? And I, I think I would go to the Dreamland Cafe <laughs> in the 1930s. The Dreamland Cafe and Tavern. That's the name of the business Cassius opened in 1937 after he quit his job at the Curtis Hotel. After years of serving white people in a fancy downtown hotel, I can imagine why Cassius would want to open a decent cafe in his own neighborhood, a place where black people could dress up and enjoy themselves. Dreamland sat at the corner of 38th and 4th Avenue in the old South Side neighborhood where Cassius lived most of his life. Maybe Cassius was inspired to name his cafe the Dreamland after the Dreamland Theater in Tulsa. Remember, Cassius grew up in the countryside outside of Tulsa. That theater was one of the many community spaces that was destroyed in the massacre in 1921. The Dreamland Cafe was a modest storefront, a place that served simple food like chops and steaks along with 3-2 beer. Its very existence, its essence, was a dream space, a place of the imagination, a place that Cassius willed into existence. I couldn't find a lot of photos of what the Dreamland looked like on the outside, but I did find some of what it was like on the inside. And it was always a party. People are crowded into these tight booths with wood paneling on the walls and formica tables. What I notice is that the people always look happy. And even more important, they look comfortable. They look like they're among friends. These are the photos that we all have from our happiest and perhaps tipsiest weekends. But this is the late 1940s, and the people at the Dreamland, they are dressed. Suits, pillbox hats, pearls and stoles. They've got their arms slung around each other's shoulders. And in most cases, the drinks on the tables outnumber the drinkers. This, this is a party. And these are party people. I wanted to see it for myself. And so when I found out that the building was still standing, I decided to go and see it. Uh, the first time I ever heard that this place was called the Dreamland, I said to myself, if I ever get a chance to have a place, I'm gonna name it the Dreamland. Cause it's so, it's just so evocative and it's so beautiful and, and who can't relate to that? Who can't relate to whatever it is they dream about? You know, it is kind of a land of dreams. So how do you not love that, the Dreamland? Come on, it's the best. <laughs> Looking at a building, it's pretty modest. It's got some stucco and some brick. It's painted sort of like a golden retriever color. You know, two little windows. Super, yeah, super modest, but like at the same time, bring evocative to me and brings to mind like places where I've really enjoyed myself in my lifetime, um, specifically bars. <laughs> I think the best places are the the, the best places in is according to me are the ones where the owners are on site, and so I like to think of this as a place where if you walk into the Dreamland, then you're going to find Cassius, and he's going to be on site, and he's going to be, you know, because without him, then it's not the same, and so I like to think of him as sort of like the mayor of the corner, 
you know, where people pop by and not just get something to drink or eat, but to, to chop it up. The way that I've always envisioned the neighborhood is everybody kind of knows each other. The kind of neighborhood where people are just like occupying outdoor space too, not just indoor space. And in fact, right now, looking across the street, there's guys hanging out in front of the barbershop, just having a conversation. And that's the way that I think about this neighborhood or that I, that I would like to think this neighborhood would have been like back in the day where folks were relying on each other for stuff or you might borrow something from someone on the corner or maybe after you are done cutting hair you come over to the dreamland and get that cocktail that you can wind down at the end of the day. So the Old South Side is this incredibly central neighborhood to Black cultural and business and you know political life. So the dreamland it was located in this commercial strip where it was surrounded by other little clubs, churches, you know, little stores of one kind or another. It was, in a lot of ways, the commercial backbone of the Black community, certainly on the south side of Minneapolis. But in northern cities like Minneapolis, something called racial covenants had the same function as Jim Crow laws in the south. Together with redlining, racial covenants created legal segregation in housing and neighborhoods. The Old South Side was one of the neighborhoods that was formed by restricting Black life in the early 20th century. Kirsten Delegard knows a lot about these covenants. She's the co-founder of Mapping Prejudice. It's a research project that shows the structural racism that stopped Black people from buying property and building wealth. And what racial covenants were is they were private contracts that were attached to certain parcels of land that made it illegal for someone who is not white to even occupy that land. And so what that meant in practicality is that the cities had been relatively integrated until around 1910. There were growing Black neighborhoods all over the Twin Cities, and that really began to constrict. And by the 1930s and 1940s, if you're a Black person in Minneapolis, you're living either in the Old South Side the near north side, the area around Hiawatha Avenue, or what we now call Cedar Riverside. So those are the only places where you're potentially legally allowed to live. The dreamland existed within the context of Black life being constricted and restricted. Space where you're allowed to move freely feels rare, and as such, extremely valuable and important. And it wasn't just about where you could live, but where you could socialize and hang out, too. Black people were not allowed to stay at downtown hotels, and they certainly were not allowed to, to eat in downtown restaurants. And so when you had people come into town, like Lena Horn, she would eat at the Dreamland Cafe, because that was one of the only places where she would feel welcome. What gets my hackles up when I hear this is that the idea that celebrities like Lena Horn are likely coming into town to entertain white audiences, but then they can't even eat at or stay in the same spaces they're working in. And so the Dreamland wasn't just a bar. In so many ways, Cassius was stepping in to fill a huge void in the city and a void in people's lives. So the Dreamland, you know, even though if you look at the exterior of the building, you think it's this tiny little modest building. It really had this outsized footprint in terms of its cultural import in the city. And as important as this work was, not everyone saw it that way. For instance, during World War II, Cassius was running the Dreamland and at the same time, he was required to do much more than that. But I had to be employed in essential work. I worked for International Harvester for three years. I worked in the two crib. We made the 
gun that shot through the propeller on the airplanes. They ruled that uh, the restaurant wasn't essential, but they let all the white restaurants in the neighborhood who had proprietors, they let them go, but they ruled that mine wasn't essential. When I think about how hard Cassius had to fight in order to simply have this space, to make sure it existed, not just for himself, but for all of the other people who needed it, it makes me proud and also a little sad. America's favorite mantra is that if you just work hard enough, you can do anything. And Cassius was working harder than he ever should have had to. And yet his work, like so much black labor in the history of this country, was dismissed and devalued. And while Cassius clearly had a generous spirit where it came to making room for people to be, he was also a businessman. And anyone in the restaurant business knows that the money, it's what the people drink, not what they eat. By the late 1940s, Cassius had set his sights on opening a bar in downtown Minneapolis. Since his days at the Curtis Hotel, Cassius wasn't content to live within the confines of discrimination or segregation. He wanted to have his business and space wherever he chose. It would likely not have been enough for Cassius to only have a business in the segregated part of town or to be told that liquor licenses were just for white people. To claim that space, Cassius once again needed to fight. There was the assumption that if you were a person who was not white and you wanted to open your own business, you had to prove that it would not be used for what was called immoral purposes. And there was always this barrier for people who are not white to prove that. If the assumption going into starting a business is that you plan to use it for immoral purposes and your job is to prove it otherwise, imagine how difficult it would have been to get your business off the ground. And remember, these restrictions were literally written into property deeds and zoning regulations. So it's not only the material barrier, but it's also all these municipal practices were all arrayed to keep people who are not white from starting their own businesses, from being successful and accumulating wealth. This was the 1940s. Another challenge was that up until this point, no Black person had ever received a liquor license in the city of Minneapolis. Obviously, in a geography that is so marked by extreme racial disparities, it's not surprising that those scarce prizes, those liquor licenses, would continue to be in white hands. Kirsten Delegard says Minneapolis has a complicated history around its liquor laws. That legacy includes limiting which establishments could even serve liquor to a very small pocket of the city. That's why until pretty recently, you couldn't buy a cocktail outside of downtown Minneapolis. But Cassius had his sights set on downtown. So he filed an application for a liquor license. His fight for the license made local headlines. An example is this excerpt from a 1947 issue of the Minneapolis Spokesman Recorder. They wrote, quote, Had Mr. Cassius played the usual tiddlywinks, he would have had his license. Now he doesn't have his license. And in addition is the victim of one of the most vicious, underhanded, whispering campaigns I've ever heard of. Unquote. The power structure was so hell-bent against the idea of Cassius getting his license, he was accused of being a communist. That during my lifetime, I had the FBI about communism, wanted to know if I was a communist. And when I joined, then when I applied for this liquor license, they brought up that I had been to Russia under the five-year plan. Were you? The, no. 
but I was approached. And they said I belonged to uh, the strongest cell in the city. And, oh, they bought out, bought out everything to keep me from getting a license. But they could never prove anything. Took me two years, but I wouldn't give up. I wouldn't quit. I just kept going back to every area. And I finally, through persistence, I got it. When Cassius got his liquor license, I mean, it seems like such a small thing, right? So here's an established business person with financing, you know, who has this whole network of relationships that are going to help him be successful as a businessman, you would think would be a no-brainer. And the fact that it was this huge fight and held up as this huge watershed in Minneapolis history that he was able to get a liquor license, you know, really speaks to the climate in the city. While getting a liquor license is one huge barrier... Imagine what it must have been like for a black man to walk into a bank and get a loan. While Cassius had originally had enough money to open his bar, he spent it in the fight for the license. So now he needed finances to supply the business. He went to Midland Bank in downtown to talk to one of the VPs. I said, I'd like to borrow some money. He said, borrow some money. He said, we ain't never loaned but one colored man no money since I've been here. And that was $500. What do you want? I say $10,000. I said, I've got a liquor license. It has a potential. I explained to him what it was, and he laughed at me. I said, well, are you the head man? He said, no. I said, who is the head man? I said, that's who I want to talk to. So they all start laughing, and they say, we'll take you in now. So Cassius waits to meet with the bank president, a man named Mr. Euland. He was a businessman. And he was a liberal, Mr. Eulen. He was from Sweden. Within about 15 minutes, Mr. Eulen agreed to loan Cassius the $10,000. Apparently, Cassius's reputation in the labor movement made a big impression. He said, I believe you'll make it. He said, everybody else that's in the labor movement make it. And he said, I like your style. I like the way you talk. So it shows you the difference in... Big men and small men. The small man laughed at me. Cassius was never afraid to go to bigger and greater lengths to get his ambitions accomplished, to push back against power at every bend. He was the real big man, the actual big man in the room. While the power structure stayed consistently busy trying to make him small, again, Cassius wasn't having it. Money in hand, Cassius was ready to take his next big step. Can you see that? That is the first Cassius bar. And I just found that as 207 South 3rd Street. Cassius's grandson, Saluki Fardon, is showing me photos over Zoom. Remember, he grew up working in his grandfather's bar. In May 1947, Cassius Club Cafe and Recreation opened at 207 South 3rd Street. An article in the Spokesman Recorder about the opening says the bar wasn't large enough to accommodate the hundreds of people that showed up. The crowd, quote, stood in front of the gleaming exterior, waiting for room inside, end quote. When at long last Cassius secured his liquor license in 1948, after buying his downtown building a year earlier, it became apparent how necessary the bar was to the community, what a crucial service he was providing to the city. And uh, this is the second one. That's my little brother there, but that's the second Cassius at 318 South 3rd Street, right? It says Cassius Bar. In 1958, thanks to neighborhood redevelopment, 
The bar moved to 318 South 3rd Street, a couple of blocks away, where it remained until 1980. Again, the facade is modest. The words liquors and wine are painted on the window. Above the door, another sign says dancing, and then bamboo room, indicating the storied live music room within the bar where the likes of Prince Rogers, father of Prince, would play engagements. And then this is my grandfather and my grandmother. Cassius and his wife, Florence, look a bit like old-time movie stars. She's glamorous, with arched eyebrows, a painted pouty lip, and hoop earrings. He's stocky, handsome, with the obvious build of a strong athlete. If you go online, you can find other photos of Cassius in his bar. There's this one photo I found of Cassius that caught my eye. He's in a long, white apron that falls down past his knee. You can tell he's the man who owns this place. But here's what I love about the photo. There's so much going on in his facial expression. Cassius's right brow, arched slightly up, seems to say, I got this. There's a resolve in the set of his eyes. He's standing there and he's strong, but there's this energy to him. Like if somebody tried to step to him, he'd be ready to deal with it. But Cassius is also holding a drink, and he's surrounded by three handsome black men in three-piece suits out for a night in the town. They're looking fly, and they know it. Elfrida Kirksey was a regular of Cassius' bar in the 70s. When she describes her old hang, you can almost feel what it would have been like to be there. When you walked into uh, Cassius' bar, there was just a sense of joy in the air. Everybody uh, came out, they came out in some of their finest, the ladies and the gentlemen. It was as if uh, it was one big family. I don't think I ever saw an angry person down there. Well, I think it's important to reflect on the specific kind of joy we're talking about, Black joy. It's also so impressive to me that Cassius's bars were always known as mixed-race spaces, the kind of places where everyone could come to mix and mingle, to feel comfortable, and to feel safe. And remember, the bar was downtown. It was close to the police station and the courthouse. The policemen came in, uh, attorneys came through. Then you did have the uh, mixed-race couples, but uh, everybody just treated everybody with respect. I just want to pause for a second and say the fact that the cops were hanging out at Cassius's bars is bananas to me. I can't imagine a Black-owned bar in Minneapolis where that would happen today. Cassius's bar was able to exist and accommodate all kinds of people for a very long time, and that's what made it so special. Yeah, I had customers there for 40 years that lived and died for me. At one time, my trade was 80% white and 20% colored. Of course, at that time, there was only 3,500 blacks living in Minneapolis. Now there's 40,000. So I went through the ups and downs in business, and my business finally turned around where it was 90% black and 10% white. But I've I've had the pleasure of catering to both and and having a diversified business where that uh, I always tried to see that people got along. And one of my criteria was that you had to respect the person next to you. If you didn't do that, you didn't respect yourself. And on those premises alone, I remained in business for 47 years, consecutive years. But for all of the loftiness of the idea of the bar, for all of its social and cultural importance, Cassius's bars functioned as ordinary bars too. 
the place you went for a drink and for a greasy bite to go along with it. I asked Frida if she had a signature drink back in the day when she went to the bar. Yes. <laughs> Crown well on the rocks with a water bag. <laughs> you just know that Frida had her fun in Cassius's bar with that Crown Royal. And by all accounts, Cassius's burgers were the best in the city. Here's Saluki again, Cassius's grandson. But I do remember one time when I was watching Johnny Carson's show. There used to be a program called uh, Barney Miller, and Ron Glass was a black guy, and he was one of the detectives, and he was in town here at the Guthrie doing a play. And so Johnny Carson, he asked him about the Guthrie. He said, yeah, I was at the Guthrie, and I couldn't wait to get out of there so I could run over to Cash's and get one of them greasy hamburgers. And so my grandfather called up and called my mom. We got free advertisement, you know, which I thought that was really thrilling. You know, this is on national television. And so we heard that for a while because people, like I said, people all over always talked about Cash's hamburgers. What I love about that story is you're on national TV. You're mentioned on the Johnny Carson show. But really, it's about the free advertising, which means that Cash's has his eye on his money. And Cassius's accomplishments didn't operate in a vacuum. They came out of an outsized man with an outsized personality. Saluki remembers his grandfather not just as the godfather, but also sometimes wickedly mischievous and fun. Because I remember one time I asked her for a dollar. And I knew he was messing with me because he went in one pocket and he's going through all this about this thick thing of, of different dollar bills, right? And that's the first time I did see one. He had a thousand dollar bill which they don't make no more. Then he had hundreds and fifties. So no, this is the wrong pocket. Then he went to another pocket. This pocket had like fifties, twenties, and tens. And he said, no, wait a minute. Let me he put that away and went to the other pocket. Finally, he got to the pocket that had ones, fives, and tens in it. Gave me my dollar. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, maybe I should have asked him for more money. Because I knew he was messing with me after that point. But he did all that just to show me that, okay, you come ask me for a dollar, I'm going to give you a dollar. Okay, that's what I asked for. When I hear this, it's not just that Cassius was a playful grandfather, but that he was the man who always aimed high, who carried $1,000 bills in his pocket, who doesn't mess around with middlemen. He goes straight to the top. Saluki told me this other story that really illustrates that. Remember that first $5 that Cassius put down for Humphrey's campaign for mayor back in the 1940s? Now it was time for some payback. When I was coming up, I wasn't the best kid in the neighborhood. I was in Red Wing a couple of times, you know, the reformatory. And so I was in there, I was about 16. I had my 16th birthday in Red Wing, and it was in the summertime. And all of a sudden, the man said, I don't know who you know, bleep, 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 but get your stuff and get out of here. And I said, where am I going? He said, you're going home. And so my mother came and picked me up. And I was, and I asked her, I said, what happened? Why am I, you know, because I was supposed to be in the Red Wing for about two more months. And she said, well, dad called up Mr. Humphrey and asked him, could you be released so you could start school on time? But I thought about that because I was telling my grandson about that incident and my grandson asked me, well, what was Humphrey at the time when that happened? And I'm like, I don't know, because this is in 66. I looked it up and found out he became vice president in 1965. 
And so apparently my grandfather called the vice president of the United States. He calls up Red Wing or whoever he talked to and said, release him. And the whole thing was so I could start school on time. And that was just one of the things, you know, that kind of got me about him, about what my grandfather could do. Still, nearly 40 years after his death, most people don't know who Cassius is. And as far as I'm concerned, more people should know his name. The way they know the Daytons, or even some of Cassius's contemporaries, like Cecil Newman from The Spokesman Recorder, or union organizer Nellie Stone Johnson. Here's Kirsten Delegard again. For someone who has contributed so much, I feel like we don't talk about him nearly enough. We don't give him the credit that he deserves for everything that he did here. But 40 years is a long, long time to be in business for anybody. And as Prince famously sang, all good things they say never last. Cassius was in business long enough to watch the city change, and along with it, to see how his business has changed too. In 1980, Cassius made the decision to close. I've been in business long enough anyway, four generations, four and a half generations. And it was no longer profitable. Number two. Number three, I could no longer relate to these people. I couldn't go to him and put my hand on his shoulder and say, say, fella, kind of slow down. If you touch a fella, he's first thing he tells you, I got rights. And he has rights. You don't have your rights to put your hands on anybody anymore. And I had lost touch with this generation of people. I could no longer relate to him, so there was no need to stay in business. That was the the ending. Of, the ending of, was a tragic thing and a sad thing, but it had to come to an end sometime. The people who had come to love Cassius's bar were sad to see it go too. Boy, I tell you, those days after work, you go home and freshen up and you know that you're going to have a good time when you went down to Cassius Bar. It, it was just a delightful place to be, and it was very sorrowful when it closed. Just three years later, Cassius passed away. He's buried at Lakewood Cemetery in Minneapolis. On a sunny spring day, I went looking for his gravesite. It wasn't easy to find. Uh, what lot are you looking for? 62? Okay. So this is lot 59, so we gotta go three lots this way. Oh, yep, there. right there. <laughs> Thank you. Yep, you're welcome. Finally. In loving memory, Anthony B. Cassius, 1907-1983. It's pretty covered over. Feels like maybe nobody's been here in a while. It took a long time to find it. It's weird though. It's weird to think he's right here, kind of, beneath our feet. Yeah, just a really modest bronze marker, which it's kind of appropriate, right? The facades of his places are always modest, but, but great. So well, I'm glad we were here, though, to say hey to Anthony and brush some of the detritus off of his gravesite. Memorial Day weekend, I think he deserves that. So.
When I started this project, I wanted to know why there weren't more Black-owned eating and drinking spaces in the Twin Cities. I wanted to know more about the ones that may have once existed and what they would have been like. What were they cooking? What were their customers eating? Was there such a thing as not just Black Northern cooking, but Black Minnesota cooking? But when I started researching Anthony Brutus Cassius's life, I found so much more than what I thought I was looking for. I realized that Black people weren't eating anything without a fight. They weren't cooking anything without a fight. They weren't serving drinks, not to white people or Black people, without a fight. When we talk about Black life in America, we too often speak of struggle. But when I think of Cassius, I think about bypassing struggle and going straight to the fight, to the resistance, to the front lines of punching down power again and again, and not just fighting, but winning. For me, cooking and eating and drinking and gathering places has always been magic. These are the activities and places where life really gets done, where we can let our guards down, if even for an hour, to smile and laugh and to connect, to shut out the daily grind of life long enough to have a dreamy night or for a dream to seem possible. I find it very inspiring that he figured out his place, he figured out his foothold, he figured out, you know, in Gordon Park's words, his weapons of choice, and that it was creating a space where people could gather and where people could talk and where people could plot and they could strategize and they could have fun together. And in looking forward to what we need as a community and how we're going to get past this moment of severe crisis that we're in right now, I'm drawn to Cassius's vision of, of having these kinds of spaces where we can be strategic and political, but we can also be fully human. Humanity. It's what Cassius was always seeking and fighting for. From the time he lived in and fled Oklahoma, throughout his life's work in Minnesota, to have the freedom to go and grasp wherever and whatever it is you're dreaming of. That is what it means to be human. That's it for the Miniculture Podcast. This episode was produced by Nancy Rosenbaum and Mecca Boss. Mecca has been writing about food and cooking professionally in the Twin Cities for 20 years. She spent three years as a dining critic for the City Pages and is now freelancing for local and national publications, including Taste Cooking, Vice, and the New York Times. Check out her profile piece on A.B. Cassius in the July issue of Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine. Find her work at Patreon. Special thanks to the Minnesota Historical Society for the A.B. Cassius oral history audio you heard in this episode. Thanks also goes to Katie Myrie, Brant Williams, and Brian Lazinski. A special shout out to the John F. Glanton Photo Collection at the Hennepin County Library for providing inspiration and a glimpse into Cassius's life. 
The Glanton collection includes hundreds of amazing photos of black life in the Twin Cities in the 1940s. Look for a link to the digital collection in our show's notes. Support for the Miniculture Podcast comes from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Support also comes from the Hennepin History Museum. Music from this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions on the Free Music Archive. Our theme music is by Javier Santiago. The Miniculture Podcast on KFAI is edited by Melissa Olson and Ryan Dawes. Until next time, I'm Ahanti Young. Peace. Thank you.